open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. Tonight is what's known as the penultimate message. That means the second to last. But it sounds cooler to say penultimate. I hate that people don't know that. Penultimate? <laughs> yes. It just sounds like an ultimate Because it is. Who messed with my stand? I looked at it. I'm fine with that. There it is. T-Rex arms are very funny. Carson, how do you feel? I beat you. You lost in the end. I don't care. I got one round. That's enough. All right. Everybody at Revelation chapter 16? Does everybody have not one, but two sheets? Totaling three papers or pages total. All right. Who wants to open us up in a word of prayer? We're going to get some dust. All right, Gibby. Send it on up. Father God, thank you for bringing us out tonight. Um, just to help prepare our hearts for camp as we have that coming up super, super soon. And I just, uh, I pray that we'd have some guests show up. And I know that we're going to have a lot of people there this year, unlike other years, like where the number was a little bit less. But this year is going to be like one of the biggest. So I just pray for all of our hearts and that it would just be um, good leading up to camp. So I know there's going to be some spiritual warfare. Yeah. And I just pray for that. So I just pray this lesson would pierce our hearts and get us ready for camp. Just stand for Amen. Amen. Tonight we will be finishing what we started last week by looking at the four accounts or the four different walkthroughs of the tribulation. Kind of say that with an asterisk involved because we already kind of looked at the third account of the, the tribulation from the Antichrist and his ministry here a few weeks back in Revelation 13 and 14. Last week we looked at, at the very beginning that there were seven what that were opened up. Seven seals. And as we talked about, after you get to the end of the sixth seal, you already have come through all seven years of the tribulation period. At the end of that sixth seal, it is the first official walkthrough and account of the tribulation period. And the seventh seal isn't even opened until... Revelation chapter 8, and as we talked last week, chapter 7 kind of serves as this parenthesis period, giving further details of what's already happening during this first walkthrough of the seven seals. And then, in Revelation chapter 8, we see the opening of that seventh seal, and it doesn't progress the story along any farther. We talked about this last week. Instead, what it does, it just reveals... Seven what? Seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets, again, they don't progress the story along any further. It's just a second account or a second telling of the tribulation events from a different perspective. Again, we, that's why we spent so much time last week looking at the intro the way that we did with the four Gospels. Jesus Christ, the Lord himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all three of the Trinity, they gave us four different accounts of his first coming. And as we're seeing here, and we're going to conclude tonight, he gives us four different accounts of his second coming. So the seventh seal opens up seven trumpets. And as we looked at last week, those last three trumpets are what the Bible says they are. They're known as woes. In other words, it's a great exclamation of grief talked about those demon locusts. We talked about those demonic horsemen running through, tormenting men. And for all of this, out of everything that God was doing to punish them for their sins, to punish the earth, to punish the kingdoms that were against God and against the nation of Israel, after all of this, did mankind finally say, okay, I get it. You alone are God. I surrender, and I call upon Christ. Did that happen? Is that how we ended things last week? No. It says that they refused to give up their fornications, and their murders, and their thefts. And that's where we pick up today with 
this fourth account. Again, the third account we didn't look at because we covered it weeks ago with the ministry of the Antichrist during this time in the tribulation period. Tonight, on the top of your page, we look at the fourth account of the tribulation, all seven years, and it is the seven vials. Do you guys realize there's nothing to me more poignant or more striking of an illustration than a vial? What we're going to look at tonight, we're going to see that there's these seven vials, and it's almost as if there are these big bowls, and God is just filling up the bowls with His wrath. He's just been storing up all of His wrath and His anger and indignation against the sin of mankind for the last 6,000 years. And man, oh man, is it getting full to the brim. He is getting close to taking all seven of them and just dumping them over upon the earth. For all of those who have refused to accept the love of the truth, as we talked about again and again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So tonight, we look at the seven vials. I'm going to need one, two, three, four, five. I need five readers. Carson, you're going to do verse 2. Sam, you're going to do verse 3. Jack, verses 8 and 9. Caitlin, you're going to do verses 10 and 11. And one more. All right, I'll take verse 16. All right. Point number one. Go ahead and read verse 2, Carson. Revelation 16. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. So we see in point one here a noisome and grievous what? Sore upon men and women that have received the mark of the beast and worshipped the beast's image. All of those who said, yes, I will refuse any other form of Christ, and I will accept this great public speaker, this great intellectual and economic genius, the man with the plan, the man who has everything together, and the one who's going to solve all of our issues and bring solutions to the world's issues. I'll follow that man. Whatever he wants, man, I'm all yours. And it's so funny to me. Because what they're going to willingly give to the Antichrist is exactly what Jesus Christ wants right now from them. Their worship. Them to say all of those things, but to Him. That I trust Christ and His plan and His purpose and His will for my life. And that I'm going to give my all for Him. That's all God wants now. But men love darkness rather than light. As we saw again on Sunday in John chapter 3, that's what it says about the state of mankind today. And as a result of that, when they take that mark of the beast, as we looked at before, that mark you will not be able to buy or to sell or to trade anything during the tribulation period unless you have that mark. Just know there's going to be a price to pay for that. And we just saw it with that first vial being dumped out and poured upon the men and women that received the mark. Next, verse 3. Sam, go ahead and read it. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became us the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Number two, we see that the sea becomes blood, and every living soul in the sea dies. So I hope you're starting to see a similarity here with the seven trumpets. We kind of looked at this already. Further proof and evidence. Again, there are a lot of well-meaning Bible scholars throughout the years that, that claim that Revelation is one sprawling story. And you start to wrongly divide the word of truth if you're not careful. Uh, follow along with me in verse 4. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountain of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. Meaning that it wasn't climate change that caused all of this. That it wasn't some rogue angel deciding to go ahead and dump this vial out. No. It was the Lord that judged thus. For they, verse 6, shed the blood of saints 
and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. We talked again last week about how things are going to be so wicked and so bad that that red horseman of the, uh, well, they called the, the apocalypse, but I hate that word because apocalypse or apocalyptic, it means to hide things. Book of Revelation does the exact opposite. It reveals the glory of Jesus Christ and what he is going to soon do in order to restitute or rectify all things back unto himself. We're reading that right now. The four horsemen, that red horse, when he starts coming through, we are going to see death and violence unlike any other time in human history. Yes, even the kindest, gentlest souls that are here on this earth that wouldn't so much as harm a fly. If they are here, when the rapture of the church happens and they don't call upon the name of Christ to save them before that day comes, that gentlest, kindest softest, most tender person that you know may very well be a person who is sawing the head off of a future tribulation saint as we've already looked at they're going to do. The beheadings that are going to happen to those who are saved during the tribulation time. They're going to be the ones that shed that blood. Understand, they're going to reap what they sow. They shed blood, they're going to drink blood. It is a part of the judgment of God. And even as oh, wicked as that might sound, because do you realize the verses we just read? God might be talking about some of our family members. He might be talking about some of your classmates. He might be talking about, I don't know, maybe you. And this is what they are going to get. This is what they are going to reap. Even so. Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. That the people who shed innocent blood, they reap it. They drink rivers of blood as this vial is poured out upon them. Next, verses 8 and 9. Who had that? Jack. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give up glory. I don't know if any of you guys went outside today. I usually walk on my lunch break when I'm at the office. I usually do four laps. I could barely even get through one before I just started profusely sweating. Really? The heat was scorching. Is it really that hard to believe? <laughs> I'm just surprised it was fun. Three steps. <laughs> oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Giving me a little bit of the benefit of the doubt there. Scorched heat of men. Number four on your outline, the sun scorches men with fire and great heat. Heat that blows today out of the water. Nothing like this world has ever seen before. Verses 10 and 11. Caitlin. Angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Hmm. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. After all of this, do you guys remember when we looked at last week with the, the first four trumpets of, again, kind of very similar to what we're looking at here, where the rivers are turned to blood, and the seas are turned to blood, and vegetation is gone. And all of these pains that come across them. And then you get to the woes. And, he, and there's actually a verse that we read it last week where the angel shouts out. He's like, oh my goodness. The first woe is past, and yet there's still two more of these suckers left to go. After all of this that we looked at. The effect it has on the economy. The effect it has on people's uh, food supply, their water supply. Their way of life, how good things were when they were following the beast and took his mark, thinking he would take care of everything for them. As good as all that was. And now, full of darkness, they gnawed their tongues from the pain. The pain of those locusts, the pain of those demon horsemen riding, as we saw last week with those trumpets. And yet again, what do they do? They blaspheme 
the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Think about how dark your schools are right now. Imagine how darker they would be if you weren't there. If no one who was a genuine blood-washed saint, born-again believer of God, was in your schools. Imagine how dark it would be when salt and light are completely removed from the equation. You understand how dark this entire planet is going to be when there are no Christians around whatsoever? It'll be nothing but darkness. And so there will be no conviction. You know how sometimes your friends, like they might cuss around you or say the Lord's name in vain and blaspheme, and then they see you. Hopefully if you have a good testimony, they see you and they're like, oh, sorry, dude. It's because their conscience is convicting them in their heart because of the light that you're shining towards them. When none of that is around, there's going to be no conviction. Their conscience will be so seared that they won't but help just to blaspheme constantly. I was trying to find it, and I couldn't for the life of me. So if anybody wants to do some digging tonight and they find it, look it up. I think it was a Bible believer named Clarence Larkin who said it. But he was describing hell as, when you think about it, hell is a place of no Christians whatsoever. So again, no light, no salt. So it's just utter darkness. And because of the torments that men go through there, they're gnawing their tongue, gnashing of teeth, the Bible says in the Gospels. And I heard it said that the longer that someone, I mean, he just put it in perspective. He doesn't know for sure. This isn't in the Bible. He's like, you got to think, the longer that somebody is suffering through that kind of immense pain into eternity, do you realize that the amount of blasphemies and cussing that they'll just constantly do because of the pain? Because there is no conviction around, because there is no light of the glorious gospel of Christ. So it's just constant, like a, a just a constant spewing out of their mouth of cussing and blasphemies just because of all of the pain they're going through over years and years and years. And there's no conviction whatsoever because what's the point of conviction? The Holy Spirit's not there. Jesus Christ isn't there. Just to get a little small glimpse of what hell might be like. Here we're looking at what hell on earth is going to be. Again, for all those who don't name the name of Christ and have been called upon Him to save them, this is their fate. Out of all of their pain, instead of crying out for Him to save us, we're sorry. Nope. Blaspheming Him constantly. Look at verse 16. Was that me? Oh, wait, did you guys get the blank for number five? The kingdom of the Antichrist becomes full of darkness. And then lastly, verse 16. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue. What is it? Armageddon. Armageddon means crowded mountain. Because there are still going to be a crowd there that actually thinks that they can take on the one true God. You think people are deceived now? Wait till that day. After everything they've been through, and they still think that they can rebel in the face of God. See, that's why... I used to get discouraged, too, when I was in school about the lack of friends that would, invite, that would come to church when I would invite them, but from the lack of people that would come to camp. Um, people, friends of mine that would come to activities. I used to get discouraged too where I thought, oh man, the rapture really is just right around the corner. Keep in mind, this is 2003, 4, 5, 6. I used to think, man, the rapture really is right around the corner because man, nobody wants Christ. Nobody wants anything to do with Him. No, this is what nobody wants Christ looks like. Compared to how things are now, it's a lot easier to get people to come to activities. Like I touched on last week, we just maybe need to rethink and be more creative with how we go about and approach people to invite them to church. Do you realize then their heart will be so hard that they actually think they'll be able to stand against the return of Jesus Christ himself? People are deceived today, but not like this. There's still hope for people now. So don't get discouraged in thinking that light is completely gone from your schools and that there's nothing you can do about it. 
There's still time, and if you're still here, you still got a mission to do. So the river Euphrates is dried up to make a way for an invasion. And of course, we would see in verse 15, we see one last rapture of the tribulation saints. Again, there's not four raptures in the book of Revelation. It's all the same rapture, just told four different ways. And then the judgment. Oh, I'll be honest with you guys. I wish we could take three weeks just to look at Revelation 17 and 18. The judgment of the great whore, Babylon the Great. That is what the seventh vial is. Hey, do you guys have friends and family members that have been duped by false doctrine? You have family members and friends who maybe are religious because they think that by being religious, they're going to gain favor with God and He'll let them into heaven. Do you guys have friends at school caught up in homosexuality and transgenderism? You guys think, or they, because they think that it's the way that the world's going, do you guys have friends who whore themselves out because they think it's going to make them prettier, thinner, or sexier? Because it's what they gather from YouTube, Snapchat, and Instagram, and, and Google? You guys have friends who want nothing to do with God because they love this world's present world system? Everything I just described to you and so much more, that's Babylon. That is the religious and political system that is known as Babylon when you look at Revelation 17 18. We already talked about who the mystery whore is during our time in church history. Go back through to those podcasts and you'll see that it is a church, a church that purports a false doctrine that is very politically tied in. You read Revelation 17 and 18, you know what you'll find? That system's coming burning down. It's coming crashing down to an end. All of your friends and family members that are caught up with everything that is in this world system, it's going to burn. If that's the case, do you really want to be caught up being a worldly Christian? Is it really worth it? So after this, after the tribulation period, we have in letter D, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Follow along with me in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. She's pure. She's chaste. For the fine linen of the righteousness of who? Everybody else see verse 8? The righteousness of who? All together now. The righteousness of? Saints. That's Bible believers, people who have called upon Christ to save them. And he, verse 9, saith unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, This is an angel, See thou do it not. That's how you know it's an angel, because angels never receive worship. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what is this marriage supper of the Lamb? To break it down very, very simply, point one, a person who is saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they become a son of God. We know this, right? As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become what? the sons of God. And we talked on Sunday, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. But you're not just a son of God. You are, to fill in your blank, betrothed. It's another word for engaged. You can put that if you feel more comfortable. Betrothed. B-E-T-R-O-T-H-E-D. It simply means to be engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ by the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. I love it. There are so many pictures of this in our world that help give us this idea. But understand, you are called the bride of Christ right now if you're in here and you're saved. And you know what Jesus did? He got down on his knees and he offered his love and his life 
and all that He was to you because of what He did on the cross. It's a proposal. He's proposing to you. That's what He wants to do to each and every single person that's on this planet. To propose to them. And if they say yes, you know what He does? He puts a ring upon that person. An engagement ring. You know what the engagement ring is? No, it's the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.13 that we are sealed until the day of redemption, the day of this, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We don't have a wedding ring yet. You are betrothed, you are espoused, you are engaged to Christ. But I love it too, you know, for those of you guys who when you grow up and you uh, decide to get a house, anytime you go and you're like, yep, I want to buy this house, I'm going to purchase it. You know what you have to do? You have to give a down payment. It's known as an earnest payment. That's why in Ephesians 1, it talks about that the Spirit, it is the earnest of our salvation. In other words, if I, when I put a down payment on my house five, six years ago, it basically said, hey, here's a significant amount of money that says, I'm coming back to buy this house. This house is as good as mine. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit of God. He gave us His Spirit, and He declared us as His, and He's coming back for us. That's what that's talking about. And I love it. Romans 8.23, we've talked about this before. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We've talked about this. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We talked about this on Sunday mornings when we were covering godliness. The idea that God wants us to be more like His dear Son with each passing day so that the moment when we actually do come before Him face to face, man, it's just as though it's just as though it was a seamless transition. I was walking with God. I was more like God. Now I am as He is, as 1 John puts it. That's how it should be. But I love that. It says, We ourselves groan within ourselves for the redemption of our body. Your soul and your spirit, if you're in here and you're saved right now, they are redeemed. Your body is not yet redeemed until you get a glorified body like His and then you will have the full redemption of your body. You will be just as Christ is. That happens here at this moment. But I saw this verse as I was prepping the night, and I thought, you know what? How many of us are really groaning for that day? As compared to how much of us are just really so stinking comfortable in this world? That if the rapture were to happen, oh, bummer. I was really looking forward to this vacation. Oh, bummer. I was really looking forward to being in a relationship. I was really looking forward to starting my career. Oh, bummer. I was really enjoying the show that I was watching. I was only got to episode three, and now I'll just never finish it. Yeah, it is comical. But I'm sure to a certain degree there's little petty things all over the place that we have. Those little tentacles of the world that are latching on to us that make us a little bit comfortable here. We've looked at before. The Bible says that we are pilgrims and strangers in this place. This place is not our home. But the moment we start thinking that it is, that we get so comfortable in it, we find that we're not really looking forward to eternity. We're not really keeping an eternal perspective. We're just looking at the temporal things to fill our temporal time for our temporal pleasure, and we don't give a lick at all for the things of Christ and what He wants to do and accomplish through us. And we're no different than the tribulation worldly people that are going to be here. Oh, do you groan for this day when you get to see your Lord and Savior face to face for the first time? 
and the marriage supper begins. We eagerly await the bridegroom to come and carry us away to be with him forever. And that's at the rapture of the church. That's what starts it. But in letter number two, once the rapture takes place, there is a period of time to get prepared for the marriage supper. And you know what that preparation time is? The judgment seat of Christ. You know what's kind of neat? Like before Heather and I got married, we both kind of got prepared. We both got prepared. We had to go and get a dress. We had to go get a nice tux. And not only that, there were rewards. I'm wearing one of them right now. Andy, you're supposed to be looking. The underwear? No. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. In order to... <laughs> I knew he was going to mention that. In order to prepare for my marriage... I had friends who got rewards for me, who got gifts for me, so I could be prepared for that day, so I could show up and present this as I'm ready, as I'm prepared to be looking all good and spiffy for my bride. Heather got a dress and she got her hair done. She had preparations that she had for that day. You know what the judgment seat of Christ is? We talked about it before. It's a place of rewards. It's a place for you to get prepared to stand before your husband. But man, I'll tell you what. You go up there and you have nothing to lay before him. You have no crowns to put on his head. No crowns at all for him to have. And he shows up to the wedding day crownless. Be a sad day. You can get prepared now for that day. Number three, after all the preparations have been made and all the guests have arrived, that's the rapture of the tribulation saints. You can cross-reference that in Matthew 22 and Matthew 25, a slew of cross-references regarding that. Then the marriage supper can take place. And at the conclusion of that supper, it's time to go on the honeymoon. But before you go on the honeymoon... Got to take care of business. And that's what Jesus Christ does on your next page. We now enter into the final third part of our study of Revelation. We will conclude this entire series next week. But the rest of tonight and next week, we're going to look at part three, the second coming of Jesus Christ and what is to happen in eternity future. Do you recall from our review, John, he writes this whole entire book not from the perspective of him being in prison in 90 AD. No, remember, he's transported or raptured through time in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. At the start of the rapture, and he was told to write what he had seen, church history, what he is seeing, the tribulation events, and the things that shall be hereafter, which is where we're at right now. A little quick review for you there. Point one on your outline. Here we come to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, as we talked before, the day of the Lord, those days, what starts and kicks out all off is the rapture of the church. But the rapture of the church is not the second coming of Christ. Because in the second coming of Christ, as we'll soon see, His feet touch down on the earth. The rapture, He comes in the sky for all of us. But even more so, you know what today is? This day that we're looking at? Hold your place here and turn back to chapter 6. You know what this day, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, really truly is? On top of all of the vials and all of the woes and all of the trumpets and all of the seals, look at verse 15. Talking again about the people that are going to be left here. The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man. You realize that with all of those men that he just described there, he basically talks about people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, from every kind of status and hierarchy in the world today. Everyone who's left here. 
They're going to hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And here's what they're going to say. They're going to say to the mountains and the rocks, they are praying to creation. And here's their request. Here's their prayer to creation. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? You know how Isaiah 13, 13 describes it? God is saying, therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place. Those rocks falling down in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. What chapter is that again? And what verse is that again? Yeah, that's going to be the last rebellion. All right. Well, technically later, but more on that next week. Back over to Revelation chapter 19. That's what this day is. Him coming back, it is to set forth everything that has gone wrong in this planet for the last 6,000 years. It is to rectify, or as Acts puts it, it's the restitution of all things. Acts chapter 3. It's the theme of the entire Bible, whether you realize it or not. It's not about the gospel. The gospel is a small part of it. The theme of the entire Bible is about a king and his kingdom. And this is the day when the king will do what is needed, will do what is right and true and just in order to set himself down upon that throne where he will for once and for all get the glory and the honor and the praise and the worship that he is due because of who he is, because of what he did on the cross to pay the price for the sins of all mankind. Yes, even those who are blaspheming him and are rejecting him and are cursing at him while they're being tormented for their sins. He died for them. And he will get the worship he deserves as one day every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, both in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 19. Look at verse 11. And I saw... There's only one other place in this entire book of Revelation where this happens. I saw heaven Opened. First time you see that, Revelation chapter 4, the rapture of the church. Someone went up in Revelation chapter 4. Now someone's coming down. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make what? His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Oh, and don't miss this chapter, this verse 13 either. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called who? The Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who do you think those are? We've already looked at them tonight. Who's going to wear white, clean linen? The saints. We're coming with him. And verse 15, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that sword of the word of God in Hebrews 4.12, that with it he should smite the nations. That's how powerful the book is that lies in your lap right now. One day, this book, the sword coming out of his mouth, will take care of everything. You think it can't help you with your problems and your issues that you're going through? This same power that will wipe out all of the enemies of God, it will wipe out all of your enemies. External and internal. will take care of them all. The same power that is in your lap right now. Of this. That is how 
powerful this book is. These are the kinds of things He wants to do in your life right now. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his... I don't like the Old Testament God. He's too brutal. I like the New Testament God. There he is. One and the same. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Letter A. The glorified Jesus Christ returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, riding on a white horse with great power and authority to judge and make war. Psalm 96 verse 13 says, He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Uh, remind me again what John 17, 17 says. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 and 6 talks about Israel dwelling in safety because the king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Letter B, when Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives, check this out, the whole mountain will split in two. I love this passage, Zechariah 14.4. This is a prophecy talking about this day. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the where? Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives, check it out, shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it towards the south. In other words, when that feet, when that foot, those feet of brass, as we looked at in Revelation chapter 1, brass always being a picture of judgment in the Bible the brazen altar always being a picture of judgment when his foot just touches the mountain it's gonna crumble it's gonna split in two like nothing that is power remind me again what happens in Acts 1.8 but after this what shall happen Ye shall receive power. What does Romans 1.16 have to say about the gospel? For it is the power of God unto salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that don't believe, but to us who do believe, it is the power of God. We want to see God do things that we can't explain. We want to see Him do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us in Ephesians 3.20. Understand, this same power not only dwells on your lap, but resides inside of you if you're in here and you're saved and you know Him. Greater is He that is in you than he that is where? In the world. Now, do you believe that? I'm telling you, I know we kind of do like, you know, the, the dating and biblical relationships class once a year. Not feeling that really this year. We might need to do Revelation once a year. You understand, when we keep an eye on this day, this is what it means to have eternal perspective. When you keep an eye on this day, when you keep an eye on just how powerful and strong Jesus Christ really is, you realize how all of the big problems that we deem big in our life, all the impossible things, the sins that easily beset us that we just can't seem to get over or get a hang on, uh, those infirmities or maybe those quirks about us that we just think, man, I, I just I can't overcome this. Even genuine, real, big problems that you might have in here. I'm not downplaying it, but do you see how compared to this, how 
relatively easy they are for God to handle, they're nothing to Him. The Bible says His arm's not shortened, that He can't reach down and help us. He's not slack. This same power lives and dwells inside of you right now if you know Him. Power to do extraordinary things. Power to overcome all of your frailties, your insecurities, your struggles, your sins, and your genuine problems. If we let Him. I'm telling you, we keep an eternal perspective and look upon things like this, our day-to-day issues will get real, real small. There'll be nothing to us as well. We'll start focusing more on eternal things like the Word of God and the souls of men and making sure that there are as little people in our sphere of influence there at that day awaiting Him as possible. Oh, Mount of Olives. Almost forgot. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, angels speaking, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Uh, You know where the angels said that? You know where Jesus Christ was last seen physically on this earth? Uh, Verse 12. Then returned they, the disciples, unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Number three, or letter C rather. His eyes we saw are as a flame of fire. His countenance is as the, the sun in its strength. And his clothes... Did you catch it? Will be stained with the blood, but not of his blood. The blood of his enemies. We got to see this. Hold your place here and turn over to Isaiah 63. We got time. We will finish Revelation before camp. Isaiah 63. You want to know what passage Revelation 19 is describing? What Old Testament correlation? It's this passage. Verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom? The Edomites, the enemies of Israel, with dyed garments from Bozrah, the capital of Edom. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He is mighty to save, but people are rejecting the love of the truth. Wherefore, verse 2, art thou red in thine apparel, and thine garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I, and this is Jesus Christ speaking here, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger." and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Well, isn't that just a pretty little picture? Wouldn't that be just a great church stained glass window that we could put in in a beautiful church building? Jesus Christ stained from head to toe, completely covered and drenched in blood. Not just, oh, my shirt's a little wet. No, I'm talking drenched and dripping to whereas the garment's like 20 pounds heavier because it's just so soaked with the blood of his enemies. I don't know if any of you guys watch any war movies of soldiers who come through a battle where they're just completely just covered head to toe after a sword fight or a gunfight. Drenched in blood. That's the image I get. Riding on a horse. That's our king. It's not a picture that most people like to see. Verse 4, For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered, there was none to uphold, because there was no one left here who was calling out and repenting of their sins. Therefore... Mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them 
shrunk in my fury and I will bring down their strength to the earth. You want to get drunk? You think it's okay for Christians to dabble in alcohol? Understand, one day there is a drunkenness coming, but it's not because of alcohol. It is because the Lord Jesus Christ will execute such fury that they will be completely and utterly discombobulated. The wrath and the fierceness and the anger of Him treading the wine press. How do you get wine again? Through what? A grape? You know how you get juice out of a grape? Now you see why the feet are feet of brass. This is no ordinary day. This is a serious day. Back to Revelation 19. This is the day of His great wrath. And it awaits all those who know not Christ. Letter D. We saw that there is an army that followed Him in white and riding on horses. We just saw Zechariah 14.4 talking about the Mount of Olives. Or Mount of Olives. Here is the very next verse. No, it's not. There it is. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Fall on us, fall on us. It's not going to work. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come. And all the... Who? Saints with thee. We saw before Jude 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam... Seven church periods, and then after that, a rapture. Prophesied of these, saying, Behold, Enoch also was raptured. That was the little takeaway. You can check that out in Genesis. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his who? To execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's who's left here. They're religious in nature, but they're actually ungodly. Say the mark. They're following the beast and worshiping him. Letter E. An angel declares victory for Jesus Christ before the battle even takes place. You can see that in verses 17 and 18. Letter F. The Antichrist, or the beast, and his army prepare themselves for battle, but they are quickly defeated. The Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire, and the remaining armies of the Antichrist are slain by the word of the Lord. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army, and the beast was taken. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, and with which he deceived them that, he had, that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. Understand there's going to be a lot of good, religious people who are here on this day. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the, ho the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Remember what David said to Goliath? I'm going to feed your flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. That's what's happening here. All of them are slain. You guys are familiar, again, we've looked at again with 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. I put Revelation 14.20 up here. Again, talking about that wine press. The wine press was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse bridles. Can you imagine that? A horse walking through with blood up to its bridles, about four feet high approximately, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. So get the picture. Blood up to the bridles, that's four feet. A uh, thousand and six hundred furlongs, that's about the area of 180 miles. 
full of blood. Put it in perspective, that's like going from Cedar Point all the way down to Dayton, Ohio. That's 182 miles. That's a lot of blood. Jesus Christ will be baptized, so to speak, in the blood of His enemies, completely submerged on that day. Do you want your friends and family to be there for it? Do you want your teachers and your classmates, friends and acquaintances to be there? Psalm 58.10, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. See, I don't want to see my family and friends there. So when I read a verse like that, I can't see myself rejoicing if they are there. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Why would anybody rejoice at that? You know who is going to rejoice at that? We kind of looked at it already in the book of Revelation. All of the saints during the tribulation period that are martyred. You know why? Because they weren't bummed out. Ugh. You're going to cut my head off now? I got four more shows left to binge of this. You're going to cut my head off now? It's just going to get married next week. I got to be persecuted right now at this very moment in time. I, I was about ready to start my career. See, in the tribulation period, those saints kind of like our spiritual ancestors in church history, they're going to be constantly on the run for their lives from the persecution they're experiencing. Do you realize that the last 100 to 160 years, give or take, that this is an anomaly? <laughs> that really when you look at the Old Testament, Israel was always being persecuted? And as we saw in church history, the church was always being persecuted? And as we've seen in Revelation... Saints of God were always going to be persecuted. You realize how much of an anomaly that we are living in right now? A contradiction of itself? That things should not technically be as good as we have it right now here in Disney World. Now do you see why this is the most perilous time right now in human history? Because everything is so good. And because of that, there's so much false doctrine that's running rampant. And so many false gospels preaching about false Christ and false way to heaven. So that so many people are believing it. And they think this must be the best time on earth because, hey, no one's getting their head lopped off. So God must be at work doing a great work. And all of these people that believe that false doctrine are going to wake up their eyes in hell one day. And I'll tell you, have you guys ever been persecuted? Made fun of for your faith? Made fun of for taking your Bible to school? Lost friends for having your Bible at school? Telling them about Christ? Inviting them to church? When you get made fun of like that, or a teacher calls you out and tells you to stop doing stuff like that, does it not cause a more seriousness in you? Do, you? do you not care less and less about the things of this world when that sort of a thing happens to you? Imagine what your life would be like if that happened all the time. You wouldn't give two rips at all about when the next movie night's going to be. Speaking of myself here. You wouldn't care at all about minuscule things. You'd be so suffering, and you'd be just groaning, as we saw in Romans 8. You'd be groaning for the adoption of your body. Oh, God, I just want you to come back. I don't care at all for the things of this world. Just come back so that you can get the righteousness and the glory and the worship you deserve now. Please come back. I'm ready for you to. Or you have so many enemies that are after you that you can do like they said in Psalm 58.10. And you'll rejoice when you see the vengeance. You'll rejoice when you see that He washes His feet in the blood of the wicked. If you're not, if you have a hard time reconciling this verse like I just did, and I went on this whole rant that wasn't even planned at all, maybe it's because you, like maybe me, might be too comfortable here in this earth. 
next to conclude the night. After this, we have the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, the honeymoon. Revelation 20, follow along with me. Verses 1 through 3, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Letter A, Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for one thousand years by an angel. We talked last week about this, how many fallen angels are bound. You saw that in Second Peter 2 and Jude 6. Man, again, kind of the reoccurring theme tonight. We know the end of Satan. He's going to be bound. He's going to have no more power. But again, he has no more power over you today if you're in here and you're saved. That's right. You don't belong to Him anymore. That's right. You're not bound to Him, and He's not bound to you. He only becomes bound to you if you let Him. Why? When we have all the power of the great Judge, Almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, living and reigning in us. Letter B, the Lord Jesus Christ, He makes a covenant with the physical remnant of Israel that survived the tribulation. Again, this is a whole two-week series in and of itself just talking about this. This is where it talks about all of Israel shall be saved, those that are still here and those that are back. And the, the, you check it out in Zechariah, and you can check it out in Isaiah 59, and I really wanted to look at Hebrews chapter 8 tonight, but we can't. But this is where he talks about what's called the New Covenant. Again, many Christians, many pastors, many Bible theologians screw the New Covenant up in their theology. They go to Jeremiah 31, they go to Hebrews chapter 8, and they say, oh, we have the New Covenant. Because the New Covenant in those passages talk about how every man shall know God. You'll know Him. Well, we can know Him now. We have a relationship with Him. And He says that He's going to put His law in our hearts, which is something that Christ said He would do in John 16. So they take it out of context and wrongly divide the word of truth and say, we're living the new covenant. No, this happens with Israel after the tribulation, after the second coming of Christ. You can check those passages out later. Letter C, those who were partakers, sorry for the lack of word there, I caught it before you did, Carson. Those who were partakers of the first resurrection, the first fruits, the harvests, and the gleanings of the rapture, they live and reign with Christ. Uh, that's you and me if you're in here and you're saved. For 1,000 years, and they are also given the privilege of carrying out the judgment of the nations. Time doesn't allow us to read the rest of Revelation 20, so you just have to take my word for it. Or rebuke me on that, because you should never take my word for it. Check out the rest of these passages later. But it talks about us ruling and reigning. You could, I highly encourage you to read Matthew 25 later on tonight. That's talking, it's that parable that Christ talks about. He's like, hey, you know, because you took care of me, you fed me when I was weak. You nurtured and took care of me, and you looked after me. You housed me when I didn't have anywhere to go. You gave me water when I was thirsty. And the disciples were like, when did we do that, Lord? He's like, when you've done it to the least of these. That parable actually has a very good practical application of how we should treat each other, but even more so a doctrinal application talking about this very moment where we and the Old Testament saints are going to judge the nations for how they treated the nation of Israel during the time of the tribulation period. You starting to see now why I said it'll take like two weeks in of itself to cover? I had to just summarize it right there. This is where the book of Daniel really helps specify this. But how each individual nation took care of God's people, the nation of Israel, they're going to be judged accordingly, and we're going to help in that. And check this out. This will be the last... Hold on. I don't know why I have that on there. 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. Do ye not know that the... Who? Saints shall judge the world, and if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we, church, shall judge 
angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? How do you think you would do? You feel worthy to judge an angel? If not, you probably should evaluate yourself as the reason why not, because according to this, it's happening. Letter D. When 1,000 years have transpired, Satan is loose from the bottomless pit, and he quickly amasses an army for another coup d'etat, a revolt, one last rebellion attempt against the Lord Jesus Christ. Letter E. Satan's final rebellion is speedily and soundly squelched and quashed. Squashed. Sorry. When God sends fire down from heaven to devour them all. Again, the most epic battle you've ever seen in a Marvel movie. Endgame. That was epic, right? God's like, no. Nah. Fire. They're done. It's nothing to him. This is the battle of Armageddon. It's the last battle. It's the last revolt. And God takes care of it with a snap of his fingers. That's the biggest battle in all of human history. Again, how much more can he help you with your issues and problems and sins? Man, letter F. Satan is cast in the lake of fire and brimstone and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. So keep your eye on eternal things and the cares of this life and this world will just fade away. Let's pray. And Lord, haste the day that you come back to execute judgment and justice. Haste the day. The day of your great wrath. When the restitution of all things happens. And you get the glory and the worship and honor you so richly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.